well, I don't know about you, but when I uh, am driving, it is hard to drive 55. Mm-hmm. More than that, I've got a mental list when I drive of behavior that's inappropriate for other people. Now, maybe you have that too. Let me show you how it works. I'll be driving along, going a little over the speed limit, on my way to something important, and right behind me, I'll look in the rearview mirror, and there will be another car. And this car is going way too fast. They're coming up behind me. They're about to bump into me. And they're a maniac. I mean, this guy is a maniac. In fact, I turn to the people in the car and say, i got a maniac behind me. They're swerving up. We're going to get somebody killed. They're going left and right trying to get around me. And eventually the maniac zooms over and top me. I'm like, man, what is wrong with these people? They're going to kill somebody. That's a maniac. Drives me crazy. But then I'll be on my way to something important. I might be running late. And in front of me will be an idiot. I mean, this guy is an absolute idiot. I mean, it's like he's taking a Sunday drive, and I am trying to get here, and this guy is an idiot. And so I'm saying, hey, the gas pedal is the vertical one on the right. You've got to push it down to go. And I'm getting so angry and so frustrated. I'm trying to swerve to the left and get around him, swerve to the right and get around him. And this guy is right in my way. Drives me nuts. That is on my list. And then I realized, I am every maniac's idiot and every idiot's maniac. (laughs) The very thing I get so mad about, the very thing that violates my inappropriate list is the very thing I do to people because I am every idiot's maniac and every maniac's idiot. It's so easy to see what's wrong with other people, but not to see that the problem might be something we're doing, like you're about to see. Let's watch. Well, we all have a list, don't we? We have a list of what we think is uh, unforgivable, what other people do to us, things that are unforgivable that we promised ourselves we wouldn't do it again, and we did it. We have a list, internal list, of what we think is unacceptable. And usually the thing that's unacceptable is things that other people do that we don't, right? That's our list. Well, I would never do that is how we say it. Well, today I want to talk about the list. We all have an internal list, and that list leads to several bad things. It leads to a critical spirit, it leads to self-righteousness, and it leads to shame. Whatever your list is. I'll give you an example. So one of my on my list is I hate people wasting my time. I'm big about planning well and being efficient. So I was flying in about six months ago. We fly in uh, to the CVG. As we land, we pull up to the, uh, to the gate, and all of a sudden the announcer comes over and says something like this. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we have an unfortunate uh, situation here. Oh, man, what's going on? Uh, we don't have anyone to drive the gate over to the plane, so it's going to be a few moments. Oh, and just the group moaning the whole place. How in the world could they not have somebody in this airport to drive the gate over so that we can get off from the plane over to disembark? This is ridiculous. So I turn to the guy next to me, and five minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, and finally I turn to him and I says, you know, if only there was some kind of way that the planes could communicate to the ground, like a, a radio wave or something, or a phone call, wouldn't that be amazing? And he's like, and so he jumped in, he's like, yeah, that would be some kind of technology so they could prepare for our coming. And we're getting more and more sarcastic, more and more self-righteous, more and more feeling like we're better than these idiots who you know, couldn't be efficient enough for their time. And I said, how many people do you think are on the plane? He said, oh, I'd say about uh, 400. I said, all right, what do you think the average uh, 
annual or hourly rate is. And so we're calculating the hourly rate, and I've pulled out my, my calculator, and we're calculating the number of people, time the average annual rate or, or hourly rate. And we're like, these people have now got us stuck on this airport for 30 minutes, and that has cost the, 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 the GDP of America $20,000. And finally let us out. So our list of being inefficient just created a, a lot of fun, actually, but a real sense of self-righteousness and moral superiority. Other times, for example, uh, Matt Good, pastor who was here uh, four or five weeks ago, uh, who was an atheist, sharing his story. As we've been emailing back and forth about his uh, objections, he shared one that I hear a lot. And that is, I cannot believe in a message or a Bible or a, a story, whatever you want to call it, that says that I can live a good moral life and that some deathbed criminal on his deathbed can pray and ask Jesus into their heart and they get into heaven and I don't. And maybe you've, you've wondered about that or sensed that. And what I said to Matt as we were emailing back and forth, I said, well, I think at the issue is you've got a list. And the list in your head is that you're much better than those people, those criminals, those bad folks. And so you feel like you're morally superior to them. He says, no, I don't. I said, well, maybe you do because you think it's unfair. Somehow you're more forgivable than those people who do those things. And so we've been dialoguing on that. For others of us, there's some list of something that is inappropriate or something that is unforgivable. For some of us, we've heard about it in church even. And then we've done some of those things that we heard were shameful or unforgivable, and we wonder if God could ever forgive us again. We wonder if we could ever be acceptable again. And it fills us with guilt and shame, and we don't know how to untangle ourselves from that. So we're going to look at three hurdles today, and we're going to tackle some very difficult ones. The first one is, how about suicide? Is suicide an unforgivable act? Is that on the list of things God can't accept and won't forgive? How about the second one, like I just mentioned? If a criminal can have a deathbed conversion and get into heaven, why is it fair for us moral people? Thirdly, is there a list of better or worse infractions in the Bible? And by the way, whatever the list is, and I've never seen it, I've never done anything on the bad list, right? I've never met anyone who thinks they did anything on the bad list. Like I think if you even go to a prison and you'd say, wow, you killed somebody, that's bad. Oh, that's nothing. I know somebody who killed five people. There's just something in the human heart that pushes that. So the question is, if the list produces self-righteousness, produces a critical spirit and shame, where did this list come from, that there are certain things that are more forgivable than others that we all have? You know, the History Channel recently did a uh, little documentary on what we've come to hear and be known as the seven deadly sins. Let's watch. The seven deadly sins. They exist in each of us. And some say they affect our very souls. These are death-dealing sins. They will have a severely damaging effect on one's spiritual life. Lust, envy, gluttony, sloth, greed, anger, and pride. According to Christian theology, committing these deadly sins is as simple as thinking about them. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. Each of these sins has a secret history revealing how they came to be deadly. The seven deadly sins have had an enormous impact on history, society, and our souls. You cannot transgress God's moral law without someone paying a terrible price. 
seven deadly sins do not appear in Scripture. So where did they come from? Now, did you hear what he said? He said, it, it's fundamental to Christian theology, but they do not appear anywhere in the Scripture. He's exactly right. There is no list of these ones are really bad and these ones are not so bad. And yet it's become a part of our thinking and a part of, of practice. Now, if you grew up in a Protestant fundamental church like I did, you had a ridiculous list of if you listen to rock and roll, suddenly it's unforgivable. Or, or if you play cards, it's, it's, it's somehow wrong. Or if you grew your hair a long way. Just stuff that's not anywhere in the Bible became fundamentally part of the religious expression. And if you grew up in a Catholic church, there was clearly a list. In fact, these are called the difference between mortal sins or venial sins. Venial being forgivable. That there are certain things that are forgivable and certain things that are not forgivable that are on the list. And this list actually uh, didn't come out of the Bible. It came out of a monk who, uh, I can't remember what century he was living, but this monk was living away from evil society and he wrote down what he thought were the worst of the worst and that became part of the theology in the list that many of us have been living under the guilt and shame of. And part of that list is how do you know if you've done something on the, the unforgivable list? We've got three questions you're supposed to ask. Number one, is it serious? Well, who determines serious? Well, you'll murder serious, uh, adultery serious, lusting in your heart, eh, not so much, boys be boys. Uh, you know, not, not expressing uh, concern to my, to my son or being able to encourage them, not a big deal. Even though I've been living for 20 years with the hope and longing that my father would have one day said, I'm proud of you, I love you. Well, maybe it is serious, right? That doesn't help at all, does it? Number two, is it reflected upon? Well, what does that do? If I know that if I reflect on it, that suddenly it counts on the unforgivable list, what do I do? I rationalize everything. Well, you know, it was sort of instinct. You know, so I started, a lie came out. Bleh! You end up totally rationalizing and justifying it if that's the criteria. And three, is it made of free will? Well, what's the other choice? I'm a victim of my circumstances. You made me mad. You made me do it. That circumstance made me do it. You see, if I'm honest, and I'll be honest with you, if those are the criteria for unforgivable sins... Unforgivable infractions? I probably do 90 of those a day. A day! That list does not appear anywhere in the Bible. And so here's the great news I want to share with you today. Now, it's going to be bad news before it's good news, so stick with me. But here it is. There is no, no fly list with God's forgiveness. There is no, no fly list with God's forgiveness. There is nothing that cannot be forgiven except maybe not accepting his forgiveness. Everything else is forgivable. Everything else is more serious than you imagine, and it's all forgivable. And God wants you to know that whatever's happened to you, whatever you've done, whatever's happened in your family, there is no, no fly list with God's forgiveness. So we're going to look a little bit more at the list. We're going to look at some luggage that comes with certain infractions. And lastly, we're going to look at a liquidation. So let's begin with the list. So I told you that nowhere in the Bible is a list of seven deadly sins. So whenever you think about that list, you can just say, okay, well, somebody added that. I don't even know what that's all about. If you're going to look for a list, the closest you get to is maybe in the book of James. It says that all infractions, even the smallest ones, are far more serious than you could imagine. So here's what it says in James chapter uh, 1, I believe. Next slide. I'll tell you what it says. It says, that, oh, there it is. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... So here's the standard. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. 
Now, I've got to be honest. If you have never tried to keep the golden rule, everybody tells me to keep the golden rule. I'm like, really? Well, tell me how you did it. Because I can't keep the golden rule for an hour. I don't give to other people the way I give to myself. I don't give other people the benefit of the doubt the way I give myself the benefit of the doubt. I don't serve other people the way I serve myself. I'm not kind to other people the way I'm kind to myself. That's the standard. And if instead of doing that, you show partiality, you, you treat your friends better than your enemies. Oh, that's on the list. Then you are convicted by the law as transgressors. And whoever stumbles, here it is, whoever shall keep the whole law, so you do everything right, and yet you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. Well, that's depressing. A hundred percent is the standard. So if you stumble in one area, you've stumbled in the whole thing. You might say, I don't believe that. I don't want to believe that. And here's what that does. It elevates all wrongdoing to the same level. It's all equally serious. Now, the benefit to that is everyone gets humble. Everyone gets humble. I'm no better than a prostitute. I'm no better than a criminal. I am humbled by that teaching. In a society that's filled with self-righteous people, both on the non-religious side and the religious side, the message of the Bible humbles you because all infractions are equally serious. And this makes sense. Think about Ebola coming out. If I just took one drop of Ebola and put it into a swimming pool, would you say, well, it's mostly clean? No, you'd say that one little thing was so serious it contaminated everything. In fact, in the book of Romans, we get actually a list. So if you want a list, here's a list. And just to show you that Paul's making a list to try and cover everything, look at all the extremes he gives you in this list to show you that everything is serious. The same list that has wickedness, uh, covetousness, evil-mindedness, murder, also has disobeying your parents, being undiscerning, being unwise and naive is on the list, being untrustworthy is on the list, being unloving is on the list, being unforgiving is on the list, being unmerciful is on the list, to which maybe when I was reading this at first you're like, well, I don't do that, I'm not evil-minded, and I, I haven't murdered anybody. Then you get to the back part and you're like, oh. And by the way, if you're proud of yourself for keeping the list, pride is on the list, so you're all back off. In fact, a, a couple weeks ago, I was doing some experiments with the, uh, the experiment we did a couple weeks ago where I shot the Alka-Seltzer stuff up in the air, and all of a sudden the fire alarms went off in our building. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And so we all make our way down the chapel out to the front door, and as I'm coming into the main atrium, all the staff is coming from the administrative side down the stairs, and as they come down, guess who they're pointing at? Me! Chad, you did this! What did you do in the chapel that caused this? And so we're waiting outside, and the police come in, they check it all out, and they determine that the fire alarms that were set off did not come from the chapel. They came from the administrative area. So in which case, I start pointing at them. See, the problem with the list is you're either accusing other people, criticizing other people, or criticizing yourself or becoming self-righteous. So when Jesus shows up, he says, all infractions are serious. In the book of Matthew, he's given a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he actually likens murdering somebody in your heart. You can go to the next slide. Murdering somebody in your heart, he puts at the same level as calling somebody a fool in your heart. How can that be? You've heard it says, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever says you fool will be in danger. Now see, that doesn't make murder less serious. It just means making a rash, contemptuous statement more serious. I told you it's bad news before it's good news, but the good news is coming. 
So if you are really wrestling with the real message of the Bible, you don't have a list of bad and worse. It's all serious. And that humbles you to the place of needing God's forgiveness, and you're able to forgive anybody and everybody because you are just as much in need of forgiveness as they are. And what happens is when you wrestle with that, what you begin to discover is what makes something get on the list? An infraction or sin or a trespass, depending on how you grew up hearing it, it's when you put yourself in the place of God. So I've never done that. I've never put myself in the place of God. But wouldn't you agree with me that if you did claim to, to be God, I mean, we say, well, that guy thinks he's God. That's wrong. If you put yourself in the place of God, even ask anybody, they'd say, well, that's inappropriate. So play this out with me. When you worry, what are you doing? What are you doing when you worry? I can't trust God to control everything, so I'm going to will things into existence. I'm going to empower, I'm going to take control of the universe that only God can control by worrying about the future. You're putting yourself in the place of God. When you're impatient, you know what you're doing? I can't trust God, all-knowing, all-loving God to control the universe because I don't trust His timing. I'm going to be impatient because things shouldn't happen this way. You've put yourself in the place of God. When you try and control things that only God can control, like people and circumstances, you know what you've done? You know what I've done? i put myself in the place of God. You know what happens when you won't forgive somebody? You're saying... I'm going to keep track of what you did two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, because I can't trust God to give you a fair judgment. I'm going to play the role of judge. You've put yourself in the place of God. Which is why suicide is in the same category of all these other ones. God is the author of life, and so to take life that God gave to you is wrong because you're putting yourself in the place of God and saying, I can take something that doesn't belong to me. It's wrong, but it's no more wrong than worry. It's no more wrong than being controlling. It's no more wrong than being impatient. Some of you are like, I've never heard that before. So I was walking down the hall a couple months ago, and a lady came up to me and burst into tears. She said, did you hear what happened? I said, I did. She said, I can't believe he took his life. I said, I know I heard. And she looked up at me and she said, I guess what's worse is I know that they're in hell now. And I thought, here's somebody who's already got the mourning of losing somebody, the guilt of why didn't I know, why didn't I catch it, why didn't I say something sooner. And now on top of that, has got this huge blanket of shame. Every family I've met who's had somebody in their family who's committed suicide has mourning, guilt, and shame. Don't tell anybody what happened. Because it's the unforgivable one. I had a uh, cousin who committed suicide just about six weeks ago. And as I shared with this friend, I said, of course it's forgivable. There's no category that suddenly that is somehow less forgivable than anything else. And I said, really? Really? So let me say to you, if you've never heard it before, whether it's a, a thought you've had in your mind or someone you know has had, suicide is forgivable. Worry is forgivable. Shame can be covered and whatever it is you're wrestling with, whatever it is that you've had happen, the good news of the Bible is it's all serious, but it's all forgivable. So I'd like you to hear the story of someone who's been through that journey and has found the hope of the good news that God can meet her in the midst of her suicidal thoughts. Let's watch.
I grew up in a great family. My parents are together and they're madly in love with each other. And my older brother and sister are awesome. I feel like everything changed in my life when I turned six years old. I was molested and um, when that happened, I definitely became a skeptic of anything good. I remember growing up, sitting in bed at night, asking myself, how could a loving God allow this to happen to me? And I remember thinking things such as, how will I ever learn to trust a man? And I just remember feeling so much pain and so much shame of what had happened. And so as time went on, I grew more and more numb. And um, when I was 12 years old, I was molested again. And when that happened, I completely shut my heart out. Everything turned towards how can I numb myself? How can I make myself forget the pain that I felt? When I was a senior in high school, I felt like I had lost complete control of my life. Two months before I went to college, I thought that there's nothing in this life that could bring me happiness. It was that night that one by one I took hundreds of pills, praying that the next day my pain would be over. The next morning, I woke up and there were no signs of an overdose. I just remember thinking, what did I not do right? So that morning I promised myself that I would try again and that I would take more than enough knowing that I wouldn't make it through. That didn't happen. Two weeks later, I went off to college at Dallas Baptist University and I remember looking out at the hundreds of classmates worshiping and I felt like a complete outcast. Like there was nothing that could save me in this darkness that I was feeling. And I remember crying out in that moment and begging God just to throw me a life vest. It was in that moment that everything changed. That was the moment where God didn't just throw me a life vest. He jumped in to all of my mess. He jumped into my pain, my brokenness and he swam up behind me and he held me through it. The thing that I remember about that moment the most is how for the first time I felt like I was home. And even though he didn't take me out of my darkness in that exact moment, I felt completely safe. And he showed me that I'd never have to live another day on my own. Because of what happened to me, I felt like there wasn't a man that I could ever trust until he revealed himself to me. I was a skeptic. Now I'm a believer. You know, I love the Bible so honest. Like some of the main characters struggled with suicide. Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. God, I wish I was dead. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah. Again, it says it's wrong, but you know, if the Bible's right and how it describes us, it says we're body, soul, and spirit. So what causes somebody to contemplate suicide? Well, sometimes it's our bodies out of whack. Our biochemicals have changed. I know people who are perfectly fine and something happens in their, their, their chemicals and that has to be addressed. And if it's not, they, they go in bad directions. 
there's such shame attached to mental illness. But if it's biological, of course God deals with it. There's all kinds of biological things He works with us in. Other times it's emotional. We live in a world with a lot of hatred and a lot of anger and a lot of loneliness. Doesn't God meet us in the midst of that rather than punish us for it? Suicide's caused in a very complicated way. Depression's very complicated. Sometimes it's spiritual forces. Sometimes it's emotional lies. We believe that the world would be better off without us or that, or, that, or that we can't go on anymore. And God wants you to know that he will wrap his arms around you just like he did with Jonah and Moses and, and Elijah and others and say, I'm there for you. You're not alone. I can forgive you. I can work with you. I want to give us a chance before we continue on look at the next two points to just allow this to sink in that your shame can be covered somebody you thought was hopeless that God can still work in the midst of and if you today are struggling with those kind of thoughts and you thought well nobody will ever talk about this nobody could ever understand this I want you to know that God wants to meet you right now in the midst of this and we want to pray against those dark thoughts let's pray together Father I ask for families who have had shame related to suicide in their life for generations or certainly years that right now you just open the doors and allow your grace and forgiveness to pour in that you will bring hope into a situation that seemed hopeless. For those who have walked in today, Father, and because of circumstances or because of a relationship that's broken up and they are just so down and they wonder if you care and they wonder if you're around and they wonder if they can go on, Father, that you would right now in your spirit remind them that they can be strong and courageous for you are with them. You have not forsaken them. And you will use even these difficult circumstances now to bring about purposes, good purposes, if they will trust you. And for all this, Father, we just admit that our lists aren't serious enough. But God, you work in the midst of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, maybe as I shared that, some of you said, well, that's nice. That sounds like the kind of thing you should say to people who are struggling. But intellectually, you say, but Chad, I still can't believe it. And I can't believe it because there's a huge difference between hating somebody in your heart and murdering somebody. And that's why I want to address that briefly, is that different... Different infractions do carry different consequences or different uh, suitcases, you might think of it like. Certainly, there is a difference between if I hate somebody in my heart, though it's equally serious and that could grow into murder, it does carry a different circumstance or, or, or luggage than, say, actually destroying somebody and destroying somebody's family. So even when God set up a way of putting a judicial system in place in society, he said that different infractions carry different suitcases and therefore they should be penalized differently. Because though I may lust after some woman in my heart and it affects me, it doesn't necessarily tear apart a marriage like having an affair does. And so there is different luggage or consequences to yourself or to society by these different infractions, even though they're all equally serious. So, in the book of Leviticus, several other places, God set out a system of law in society that we've adopted into our American system. And that's the idea that there should be equal consequences to the equal infraction. Here's an example. God lays out some things that are wrong. Committing a trespass, lying to your neighbor, exhort, exhorting one another, uh, extorting one another, um, swearing falsely. Look what he says at the end. Because he has sinned is guilty, and he shall restore what he has stolen. So in other words, if you steal something small, you need to restore the value of that, that it's small. If you steal or do damage that's large, you owe and restore the value based on the damage you did. 
He goes on the next verse and he says this. Not only do you need to restore the, uh, the damages, but then you need to pay a penalty on top of that that is one-fifth more. So in other words, there's restoration and there's a penalty. Now this became a powerful principle, unheard of in that day. Because who determines the consequence of the judicial system? The criminal. If the criminal does something small, they need to restore something small and pay a 20% penalty in damages. This kept people from exploiting one another with, with ridiculous lawsuits. But it also said, I owe back, I, I wanted to get $100 richer by stealing from you. I'm now $100 poorer because I owe you $100 plus $20 in damages. And this became a way in which there could be in society a way to have fairness instituted by a judicial system, yet at the same time, a humility of all things are bad. For example, if you'd been with us a few weeks ago, we had a baptism service out here. And you would have heard folks in our baptism service, and some would say, I have been self-righteous. I have thought I didn't need God because I was basically a good person. And while I finally come to, to realize that Man, I don't even live up to my own standards. And you would think, well, small suitcase. You'd have heard somebody else in our pool talk about how they were into prostitution for many years. And the damage and the shame that came from that. And they were so thrilled to be in our pool that day that they could be washed of their shame and covered of what they'd done wrong. You'd have heard somebody else talk about suicide and a drug addiction. It had gone on for a long time and almost tore apart his marriage and how it was a, a friend and a pastor came alongside him and helped him in the midst of that. And yet, you know what you would have noticed if you were at a baptism service? It didn't matter what size the suitcase was. Nobody in the water felt better than anyone else. We were all equally in need of forgiveness. Now, did some of us have consequences that we're going to have to work through that are a little bigger than others? Sure. But this humility and the acceptance and the power of the message of the Bible, it transforms everything. It allows you to look at society and say there's different consequences when things happen because there's different luggage but from a spirit of humility. You can judge without being judgmental. Now, how is that possible? Because it's not just the list, it's not just the luggage, it's also what I call the liquidation. In Romans, God says, no matter what you've done, no matter how big the suitcase is, no matter how small it is before God, you can have it liquefied. Your debts can be liquefied. All infractions are forgivable. Look at these words. There's a lot of religious words here, but they're so powerful, I want to help you untangle a few. For there is no difference... There's no difference before God whether you do small things or big things. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, the offer is the same. You can all be justified, which means, this is so powerful, you're not going to believe it. That word means that when God sees you, after you accept Christ's forgiveness, you're justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's not a second chance to do better. God will begin to see you justified, just as if you'd never done anything wrong. Like, well, that's too good to be true. Why could God forgive suicide when I didn't have a chance to ask for forgiveness? Because when you ask God for forgiveness, you're justified. He covers you past, present, and future infractions. And that doesn't become an excuse to go, I'll do whatever I want. That becomes a way of saying, oh, who does this? It's too good to be true. I want to please you. I want to live for you. You've forgiven me of the things I don't even know I'm going to do yet. And he does it not by works, but freely. You're justified freely by his grace through the redemption. He buys you out of your darkness. 
that in Christ Jesus, God set forth a propitiation. Talk about this word. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones? There's two angels that look down on the top of the Ark. The top of the Ark is called the mercy seat or the propitiation. And the angels' wings are like God's wrath or God's anger or God's fairness, maybe is a better way of saying it, against betrayal, against lust, against all the things that you and I would say are bad. But the problem is those bad things aren't out there. They're in here. So God says, here's the good news. If you'll accept my free gift, the the fairness that would come against the things in your life, the blood of Christ covers them. And now the fairness of God is absorbed by Jesus as our propitiation, as our mercy seat. We don't get what we deserve. Instead, we freely get justification. It demonstrates His righteousness. Not your righteousness, you being good enough and being right. His righteousness. He makes you right with Him. God doesn't take saints. He makes you a saint. To which you say, well, I grew up and I just believe Jesus made part of it, but it's got to be Jesus plus works. Jesus plus me doing something. But even if you grew up Catholic, let me ask you, you, you went through the stages of the cross every year at Easter. Didn't He suffer enough? Didn't He suffer enough? What else will you add to his suffering that will make him suddenly qualified to give you peace with God? Do you see how sort of silly that idea is? I mean, it comes from a good place in your heart that you think that whatever Jesus did, whatever his crucifixion was, whatever the nailing was, whatever the, my God, my God, whatever you me, you're saying if he's not enough that somehow you are qualified to add something to make what he did for you better. Does that make any sense? What could you or I add? That he goes on to say this in the next verse. If it is by works, you and I are going to start boasting about it. Because I'm better than somebody else. Because I was Jesus plus I worked harder than you did. It leads back to the same list of self-criticalness. Because in his forbearance or patience, God passed over our infractions that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his, his righteousness, not yours, that he might be just, he's the standard, and the justifier. He makes you right if you put your belief or trust in Jesus. Where is boasting? How are you going to boast? In fact, if you meet somebody who's religious and self-righteous, you can just say, they have no idea what the Bible teaches. They have not let the Bible humble them. The Bible humbles you far than you'd ever imagine, and then exalts you higher than your good works could even imagine or believe. He finishes this verse by saying, is it by the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And look at this. For those he justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look at the verb tense. He doesn't say who he's going to justify when you're, when you're dead or when you get to heaven. It says right now when you accept Christ, you are past tense for God justified. In other words, in God's mind, when you accept him as your forgiver, at that moment, you are fully justified in the past tense for God. More than that, in God's mind, you're also glorified. That's like getting to heaven. In God's mind, the idea that you're promised heaven is past tense. You don't have to wonder if you're going to heaven. You have to wish you've done enough to get to heaven. You can know for sure in God's mind, of course it's all covered, past, present, future. You're already glorified in my mind. And now that you know that, let's get on with living life together. With no more guilt and no more shame. This is the main message of the Bible. It's that all infractions are serious. Certainly different infractions carry different consequences. Different luggage. But they're all can be liquefied. 
And that evil in the world isn't out there. That evil in the world is what gets poured in us. We have lust and covetousness and pain. We have that in our life. And we can try and mix it up and stir it up and try and do good things and help old ladies across the street and give money to charities. And guess what? It didn't do much. It just mixed it up. In fact, every time I get a chance to do something good, I usually have it tinged with selfishness and I do something bad along with it. So God says, stop all that. That's not going to work. I am the just and the justifier. Ask me to be your forgiver and leader. Ask me into your life. When you pour me into your life, I'll tell you what happens. I will come in and I will cleanse you and I will wash you and I will make you clean. And as my spirit comes into you, I will begin to wash away all of the undoing. And you will say, I want to please him because he's cleansed me. Because I'm righteousness, not based on what I've done, but based on what he's done, everything changes. Don't you want that? Wouldn't it be great to know in your heart that your shame is covered, that your guilt is cleansed? And even more so, the problem of evil, Drew addressed last week. What if you knew for sure that one day the problem of evil would be dealt with? That God would come into this world with its brokenness and its tornadoes and its hurricanes And God would say, when you pour me into that, there will come a day when I return to earth and I will fix all that is broken in the world. Is it frustrating to live now when it's not? Yes. But you have the promise that there's a not yet. I can cleanse you now that you're justified. And I will one day glorify and fix everything. This, my friends, is the main message of the Bible. Is suicide unforgivable? Of course not. Is it okay for somebody who's a criminal to be forgiven and not me? Well, it is if everything's equally serious. Is there a list in the Bible of unforgivable infractions? No, but there's a pretty long list that says that we all fall short and can find forgiveness in God. So I'm going to invite the van to come up and do this last song. And I want you to, in whatever way you can, say, God, this is too good to be true. By the way, that's when you know you're hearing the main message of the Bible because it's called good news. You'll say, that is too good to be true. Then you're just starting to taste what the Bible's really talking about. And this next song may be for you. If you want every infraction you've ever committed and ever will commit to be cleansed, you're basically saying to God, God, cover me. Cover me. And He will. You know, for many of us, we've been covered with a big blanket of guilt for years. We've been covered with a big blanket of shame for years. Today might be the day you say, I want to be covered with joy, with peace, and with forgiveness. And you can do that just simply by saying to God in your own heart, God, I'm going to believe that there is no, no fly list with you. I'm going to put down the scorecard that makes me feel better than other people because of the list. I'm going to put down the scorecard that makes me shame myself because of the list. And I'm going to let you exalt me. I want to give you a chance to do that even now as we close today. Just close your eyes with me and just maybe I say to God, God... I want that to be true. Or maybe you're ready for another step. God, I believe that to be true. Cover me. Forgive me. Come live in me. Free me from fear. The fear of doing enough. The fear of not knowing God, humble me. And God, exalt me because of your work.
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today as we tackled a very difficult topic. We have one more week in hurdles. Uh, next week, um, Senator Green is with us from Tennessee. He was the last person to interview Saddam Hussein. Uh, he was actually uh, the one who uh, watched over him the night we captured him. He is a, a hospital administrator. He has also uh, been in the armed forces, obviously where he got with Saddam Hussein. And he's going to talk about his journey as a professional into the questions of whether science proves God. So you don't want to miss this. Invite your friends next week. It's going to be a great service. Thanks for being here. We'd love to say hi to you. Third door on the left. If you came prepared to give, there's some boxes out there. Thanks again.